When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. What's going to happen now? What always happens during a curfew? They'll shut everything down, the internet, the television channels, the shops, the roads. They'll do their best to keep us locked inside our homes, isolated from the world. They'll increase the number of troops on the streets. They'll suspend, in the name of security, laws that guarantee us some semblance of human rights. But they know. They know that their shutdown will lead to one eventuality, a protest. A shit ton of protests, which means... I'm about to get real busy soon. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Nandita Dinesh about her debut novel, This Place, That Place. It's a dialogue between a man and a woman who are stuck together, locked inside the young man's home during a complete curfew. They can't leave the house since military troops are patrolling, and they're not all that safe because the troops can burst in at any moment if they suspect anything at all. The young woman is from that place, the occupying country, and is trying to work with the military troops to be less aggressive under the guise of improving their attitudes. Too many of them have committed suicide or fallen apart. The young man works on protests against the occupying government Is there any hope for a relationship between the two? All they have is time to figure it out as they huddle in the dark. Hi, Nandita. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Galit. I'm really delighted to be here. So what inspired you to write this novel? This place, that place has been inspired by almost, well, more than a decade of my working with theater-based projects in conflict and post-conflict zones. Um, So I started my work in northern Uganda and Rwanda, um, and most recently my work was based in Kashmir. And in all of these situations of conflict, my primary question then was as a researcher and practitioner of theater, wondering about the role of art in a time of of war. 
And slowly over time, and we can get into this later if you'd like to, there seemed to be a need to move beyond the theatrical premise that that my work was based in and to move toward a form that could potentially have a wider audience. And that's when I I started thinking about this idea, you know, what what might it mean to use this this decade-long worth of experiences and craft it into a novel. What would that be like? And that's where the idea for This Place, That Place emerged. So China has territorial disputes with about 18 other countries. Israelis and Palestinians haven't found a way to compromise. And many other countries have warred over land, but the occupation of Ukraine is foremost in most of our media. Why did you not choose to, to set the story there or to name anyone or any place in you know, specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and the reason, Galit, was was in my previous work in these conflict zones, you know, I worked with a particular form of theater that's called documentary theater, uh, which is really centered in, quote unquote, the reality of the people that uh, whose narratives are being showcased, right? So it was hyper-realistic and all about the details. And I often found that when we were creating this kind of hyper-real work about uh, an existing and ongoing conflict in particular, it was really difficult for the audience to look at the piece with any kind of distance. Um, It always became about the politics of those nation states. So it became about, you know, but in this scene, you represent this person as the victim, but I think they should have been the perpetrator. Or do you say this happened in this year, but it actually happened in this other year? And I would often find that the discussions that stemmed from these documentary pieces became quite reductive. Um, And they seem to be moving away from the larger questions about humanity and, and the lived experience of war and occupation that I was interested in exploring. So it, it, it was that constellation of, you know, this, this sort of these polarizing responses, censorship to some degree, um, all of that came together to make me think that, you know, I want to write a story that focuses in the largest sense about war and what it does to relationships and people. But I don't want to get caught in this kind of debate about where blame is laid uh, and removing the names of, of settings and of people seem to allow space to do that. Huh. Wow, that is so interesting. Can you say more about the young man? And why does he talk so much about smoking cigarettes? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the young man is someone who is from this place, which is currently under occupation. And um, he is this weird kind of idealist. I, I, I say it's weird because... It's sometimes in some moments, it's like he's lost all hope. He knows that nothing is going to change or he believes that nothing can change. And simultaneously, he crafts his life around a field like protest design, uh, where the entire you know premise or the goal of his work is try to, trying to think about how protests might best liberate his, his people. So he's sort of this this idealist who's simultaneously hopeless. Um, And 
The book also presents what he calls a guide to curfew time pass, which is something that he has uh, developed over the many, many curfews that he has experienced, where he breaks down a series of activities, among which smoking is one, um, that he uses to pass the time. So that's sort of the, the, the larger context of his his characterization in the work in terms of why he smokes um <laughs> there are there are the various reasons there is one clue in the text um and it's it's began in one particular curfew where his mother reveals to him a particularly intense um facet to his identity and in order to cope with the with with the intensity of that moment they both shared a cigarette. Um, and from that point forward, it becomes something that he has made part of his way to pass the time during curfew, you know? Um, and it's, I think it's also something, it's a habit that I've, I've seen in various ways in, in, in my work in conflict and post-conflict zones, Galit, is that there's some, if it's not cigarettes, it's alcohol. If it's not alcohol, it's something else. But there's always a substance-based way that people, that people I know have, have, have had to use to cope. Mm -hmm. The young woman has told the young man that she doesn't believe in marriage. And that would be unusual in either this place or that place, but they're clearly in a relationship. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, They are both exploring what that relationship could be um, through letters, through the way in which they exchange ideas, through their conversations, even their silences. Um, You see that they've developed this this immense affection for each other that transcends the platonic. Um, There is, you know, physical attraction, there's emotional attraction, there's all the kinds of attraction that could make such a relationship exist. And yet they're from two different sides of a war. So that's what they are are grappling with. In some senses, I would, you know, I just as a, as an exercise in the imagination, I'd be curious if if they were not from opposite sides of a conflict, um, and they were to have this attraction for each other, would it even work? Even if they were able to get together, uh, because of of things like you mentioned, right? They, they have some fundamental differences. She doesn't believe in the institution of marriage. He's more amenable to it. Um, there's, there's various differing points of view that when there is this big difference of coming from two sides of a war, they don't seem as serious, but they well might be um, if they do chart a relationship forward. How did the two of them become sounding boards for each other? And also, as you call them, partners in idealism. Mm-hmm. So they meet, um, you know, the young woman has been going to to this place for many years. She's been visiting for many years. And they meet at an event where they were introduced by common friends and they just had a spark. And it begins as a simple spark. You know, here's someone who seems interesting. She learns more about his work. Um, She, he, you know, he doesn't get too much into her work because she has to 
suss out what the relationship means before she can reveal to him what he's doing there, what she's doing there. Um, and so they have this sort of coded conversation enough for both of them to feel like, okay, this, this person somehow feels like a kindred spirit. Let's see what happens. But her trips to this place are always short lived. And so when she goes back, the only way that they have to continue communication is to exchange letters. And in a way, because they're wary of getting too personal too quickly, of realizing that there's decades of intergenerational mistrust on, on both their sides, it seems, I think, quote unquote, easier to talk about ideas. And so they start talking about ideas as a, as a way to test the waters. You know, is this person really someone who's aligned with how I see the world? Or in his case, is she someone who's just spying for the other side, right? Um, is she just going to spy on us and, and send the cops to our door if we say the wrong thing? So their messages are in a way of, of both of them trying to figure out if, if they trust each other. Um, and that forms the basis of their relationship. Right. So you give snippets of history. So we learn that this place once made the mistake of asking for help from that place after the empire collapsed. And that that place had taken advantage of the situation and grabbed power. So was there, just just between you and me, was there a place in the world, was there a specific place in the world that you were thinking about when writing that specific part? Um, yes and no. Um, yes, insofar as a lot of that stems from narratives that I've heard from my own, you know, um, childhood growing up in India, right? So a lot of that comes from the way, ways in which the stories of partition are told. Um, the partition between India and Pakistan and, and how Kashmir features in that. Um, so yes, there was a sense of that that bleeds in, I think. But the, the reason I want to sort of stress and say it's it's not just that, is it, because I find that that particular narrative of one region going to another for assistance in some regard, only to have that relationship become tyrannical, right? Um, we, we've seen it play out in so many different forms. Um, so even with the way in which the U.S. was uh, supporting Afghanistan at a particular point in history and the roles radically got changed um, when that help was no longer needed in the same way. Uh, and so it's so I want to say yes and no insofar as I can't discount the fact that I'm sure somewhere all the stories and, and the histories of, of partition weigh somewhere in there, but it's not just about them. Okay. What's the golden age of revolution? What did it mean? You're, you're asking all these fantastic questions. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, one thing I've noticed um, in, in my work in conflict zones, Galit, is that there's often a particular period of time that is seen by folks in those regions as being symbolic of what's possible. So this was a period of X years in which we all came together in a way where it seemed like we were going to get our peace back. 
Um, and, and that was a, a sort of a, if I can call it a motif, you know, that was a motif across these various contexts in which I, I traveled to. There was a sense that there, there was a romanticization of a particular period in history when it seemed like something different was possible. Um, and now being a moment in time, now being whatever the current moment is, where it no longer seems that way. And, and there's this sort of quest by, by younger people for that, that period of time, for that historical golden age, where there seemed to be more hope than there is at the moment. Um, so it, it was just something that I saw repeated in, in, in conflict zone after conflict zone, right? So Northern Ireland, Northern Uganda, Kashmir, uh, various spaces that I've been to, there was this, this idealization of a time in the past where revolution seemed possible. Um, and that, that's what it harkens to is, is again, a, a sort of a similarity in the history of very, very different places. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the wedding that's supposed to be taking place during the curfew? Yeah. So the wedding is taking place in this place and it's the wedding of the protagonist, the young man of, of his younger brother. Um, and they are all set to create this, this fantastic celebration. And in fact, the young woman, the other protagonist, she is staying at their house at the moment in order to attend this wedding. Uh, for her, it, it's very exciting because she's never really been to a wedding in this place and, and she's seeing it almost as sort of this, this moment in cultural anthropology, you know, it's one more way to understand this place. Um, and for him, it's, it's a way, whether or not he realizes it, a way of inviting her into this space of intimacy where she is with his family um, and especially his mother, um, who he's, he's really curious to know what their interactions will, will be like. And so the wedding is where for, for both of them in very different ways, it was going to be this momentous occasion until, of course, they're stuck in curfew and the wedding can't happen. Um, so that's one part of why the wedding seemed important. The second was, you know, often when we think about curfews and occupations, or at least when, when I did in the past, I wouldn't really spend too much time thinking about the moments of joy and celebration that happen, even under moments of, of emotional duress. Um, and a wedding just seemed so emblematic of that, that even when, you know, bombs are falling, literally or, or otherwise, people find ways to come together and to celebrate these rituals. Um, and, and how do you even wrap your head around that, right? How do you celebrate during war? Um, and I think that's where the, the wedding became important in a second way. Yeah. We need to address the number of F-bombs in your novel. <laughs> I don't usually like them, Nandita, but I but I will admit that I almost got numb and didn't even notice after a while. Yeah. Can you explain? Sure. I mean, you know, someone else mentioned that to me once and, and my response was, oh, there are there are F-bombs? Um, I, I, <laughs> I, I think I think part of it is I, I, for the vernac for the way in which these characters were thinking, the way in which they their stream of consciousness worked. That word just felt so normal 
to me that that's how they would speak, that I, I didn't even see it as being problematic till it was highlighted. Um, and, you know, it's it's just for me, for them, I see it's just, it is being part of their vocabulary, a, a way of capturing intensity in a way that they don't know how to express in any other way. Um, there is, Galit, if you're interested, there's an Indian, um, well, people would call him a, a guru. Uh, his name is Osho, and he has this fantastic video uh, out on YouTube that talks about the word, the F-bomb, and why it's one of the most versatile words in the, in the English vocabulary. Uh, and, and it's just an interesting contrast to hear like this Indian guru who's talking, this, this Hindu or the spiritual guru, whatever you want to call him, sort of expounding on why this word is, is necessary. Um, and so I just, you know, for me, it was just a way in which they use language. That was just how they spoke. Um, and it wasn't something that was chosen to be, you know, the sort of a, a marker of offensiveness or anything in that set, in that way. Right, right. Um, can you say something about the curriculum that the young woman is working on. Yeah. So she is working on something that she calls the deprogramming curriculum. And what she has realized after many years of going to this place is as someone from that place, as someone who represents a nation state that's seen as being an occupier, that maybe the best way she can help stop war is to convince soldiers not to fight. So it may be if soldiers stopped fighting, or maybe if soldiers were kinder to the people that they were um, providing, you know, um, security for ostensibly, maybe if, if they were just nicer humans in these war zones, things would be different, things would be less volatile. So her big goal is to say, I want soldiers to stop fighting. But she realizes that in order to get her work even started, she can't really go to the army and say, hey, I have a curriculum that will make you stop fighting. Um, so she uses it as a way to say, you know, I'm going to use this curriculum so that we can talk about how to humanize the interactions between the soldiers and civilians. And she's developed this this curriculum over a long period of time. And without giving too much away again, um, she's realizing that she hasn't quite thought about the kinds of explosive after effects that can come from deprogramming someone. I've saved my favorite part to discuss at now towards the end, and that is the list of the young man's techniques for enduring a curfew. We don't have to discuss all of them, <laughs> yeah. but among them are gazing, glazing, grooming, and the gauge. Which was your favorite? Ooh, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think today my favorite one is probably um, the graze, the one where he talks about how he measures how he eats. Um, and tries to make each meal last a certain amount of time. I think I'm, I, I'm thinking about that just because I just gobbled brunch um, and I was hoping that I could have been more mindful in how I was eating. So I think today um, I'm thinking about the grays. 
Okay. I, that was one of my favorites. I, um, the glaze for me, mm. the way he, his specific was just very meditative. Mm-hmm. Uh, really interesting. So Nandita, what are you working on next? So the book that's currently um, being being read by my editor is a work that's somehow somewhere between a memoir, a novel, and a play. It's called Lights Up July, and it speaks to people who have marked my experience in Guatemala, um, Rwanda, Northern Ireland, Kashmir, uh, Coimbatore, where I grew up, and it's basically building a tapestry of these significant people who I've encountered. And the fiction comes in because of my own inconsistencies in memory. I'm not sure how much of what I remember is real and how much is imagined. Um, It's also a question of what what are the things I wish I knew about them that I never asked, and now it's too late to ask. Um, and if I had asked those questions, what would those responses be? So it, it's a memoir, but also a huge sense of imagined lives um, of people who touched me in one way or the other. It sounds really wonderful. And because it's fiction, you can make yourself answer everyone perfectly, <laughs> never take a misstep, and just live the life you really meant to have lived. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Thank you, Nandita. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me today. Likewise. Thank you so much, Galit. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been speaking with Nandita Dinesh about her debut novel, This Place, That Place. Wishing you another week of wonderful reading. Bye, everyone.